So my question is this, is I want to take you back to that uh, 20-something-year-old who is unlocking the double door and coming back out to enter into this world. What do you say to him? What does Jonathan today say to that young man who's about to enter into the world of HIV activism? Have courage. What you're doing is right. This is right. What you're fighting against is wrong. Have greater courage to bring about change quicker and faster and more effectively. And um, have a bit, well, actually, to both, it would be, I know that sounds terribly serious. Because um, we did, to both, we did have fun. You know, I made brilliant friends and we did have a load of fun and lots of great stuff happened. But my people, my friends, my lovers, you know, were really affected. So, you know, running in parallel to this thing, this thing that I've been so desperate to avoid in my late teens, early 20s, I then became so completely immersed in it that it really did become my life. And um, and it became a very normal part of my life, which is, again, extraordinary that these 20-year-olds are living in this world where death and all of the shit that was there was normal. I mean, it, may, I, I, it makes me feel incredibly emotional just to remember that all of that was normal, you know, in 95. And then I've almost forgotten about, apart from the sort of shadows that kind of can't help but remember it. I wish I'd had more courage to fight harder. My name is Mark Thompson, and I'm a 52-year-old social justice activist, and this is We Were Always Here, a documentary series that explores the UK HIV epidemic through the voices of those who are most affected but are often missing from the mainstream narratives. As a black gay man living with HIV since 1986, who has been involved at the forefront of activism, advocacy and prevention, it was important to me that these stories were told. This isn't the definitive history of the UK HIV epidemic, but it's our history, moments from our lives that defined the epidemic for us. Our infection had come from medical clinicians who, on the whole, we knew incredibly well because haemophilia is the kind of lifelong chronic condition where you had frequent hospital visits to the same people, you know, these were people you grew to know and trust and all the rest of it. And yet, it had been these very people, unknowingly, who had infected you. Um, since we found out that he was hemophiliac, we've always been told to treat him exactly the same as everybody else. Can you do this now? This has become so public. Well, it's become more difficult, yes, of course it has. In yes. what ways? Um, I think just through, um, you know, media pressure, really. Just what are the parameters of personal privacy? What are they? Who sets them? And by whose authority are they issued? He'd known for two years that he had AIDS, but had kept it quiet, living the life of a recluse in his £5 million mansion in West London, where fans have been paying their tributes. He only admitted publicly that he had AIDS the day before he died. 
By the end of 1990, over 300,000 cases of AIDS had been officially reported. Between 8 to 10 million people were thought to be living with HIV worldwide. In the early 90s, HIV became more prevalent in the mainstream media. Professional basketball player Irvin Magic Johnson announced he had HIV and retired from the sport. I will now become a, a spokesman for the HIV virus. It would only be a couple of weeks after Johnson's announcement that Freddie Mercury, lead singer of the rock group Queen, announced he had AIDS. He died a day later. Said tonight they were planning a big musical event dedicated to their lead singer Freddie Mercury, who died last night. A, a tragic consequence, but it, it's something which, for him, wasn't. Been tributes to his talent and his courage from friends and from fans. When I was diagnosed, and up until say the two thousands, whenever there's this whole idea that the onus of HIV prevention, of disclosure, of discussing HIV is always with the person who has the virus. So there was always an inordinate amount of pressure and expectation on me that I would disclose. And if I didn't disclose, I was a bad person. I was morally unfit. I was a liar. I was dishonest. And that kind of language has been placed on positive people ever since. In in my, I was going to say prime, in my, in my really active periods of being sexually active and having lots of, having relationships, disclosure was important to me because I didn't like having a weight on my shoulder. It wasn't always easy to do it and it was nerve wracking. Every single time was a beast, but one did it and you kind of took your risk and you saw where the chips fell. And I've been relatively lucky that the men that I've dated or told have been quite accepting. In terms of intimacy, you you shifted away maybe from penetrative sex to discovering new ways to be intimate with somebody. There was lots of touch, lots of exploration, or there should have been. Sometimes there was lots of fear around sex. For many people, it was easier just to cut it dead. You know, I've I've worked with hundreds, literally hundreds of positive people over the years. And the abiding thing that sticks out for me, particularly for newly diagnosed people is, I will never find love and nobody will ever touch me again now that I have this. So that sits there. And even today in 2021 and onwards, I still know positive people who feel an immense amount of pressure to tell loved ones, the workplace, whoever. Disclosure is a big issue for us. My wife and I had three plans that we thought might eventuate in a situation like this. The best situation for us, plan A, was to make the announcement when we wanted to make it. Secondly was to be able to make it as we did in this case, even if we were forced to make it. We are doing it unilaterally. Thirdly is to read it in the paper and have to react to it. We did not want the third alternative, obviously. If you were the editor of a paper, is this a story? Oh, it's a story, but I wouldn't print it. Tennis star Arthur Ashe would also reveal he had AIDS after becoming infected as the result of a blood transfusion back in 1983. In the 1980s, almost 5,000 people with haemophilia and other bleeding disorders were infected with HIV through the use of contaminated blood transfusions until the 1970s, the treatment for these disorders required transfusions with plasma, which had to be given in hospital. 
This treatment was replaced with a new product which could be administered at home with an injection. The product was called Factorate and was produced by pooling human blood plasma from up to 40,000 donors and concentrating it to extract the required clotting factor. Just one contaminated sample could infect the entire batch. Blood products were known to transfer viruses such as hepatitis. So the use of pooled blood products increased the risk of infection greatly. The danger of contamination increased when a shortage in the UK meant it was imported from the United States, which used blood from high-risk paid donors such as prisoners and drug addicts. In 1982, the first death of a man with haemophilia infected by AIDS was reported in the US. This was followed in 1983 by other warnings from the World Health Organization which said that people with haemophilia should be warned of the dangers. This forced many people to hide their haemophilia for fear of stigma and discrimination. We had at the Haemophilia Society you know, kids that were not welcome at schools. We had people that were being made homeless. Many people lost their work or faced abuse because they or members of their families were known to have haemophilia. There were terrible stories of, you know, women who go to hospital, they would say their partner had haemophilia, they would be told they should have an HIV test, they'd then find they're pregnant, they're then told that they should terminate their pregnancy, they're then told that they should have a hysterectomy. I mean, and those things did happen. They did happen. The other thing that was very clear to me from that period of the AIDS crisis is that the UK, which is what then motivates me to be the, have the job I am now, is that the UK system of government was letting everyone down. People were living in precarious circumstances and or landlords might have been directly or indirectly hassling them to get out of where they were living. There was kind of panic and lack of awareness of what to do. And then not being taken seriously because the people being affected were not people people cared about when they were in power. My name's Jonathan Cooper and I'm a barrister and I specialise in international human rights law. Why I specialise in international human rights law is really rooted back in the, uh, in the early years of the AIDS crisis. I, I mean, I grew up in Devon and I was feeling quite okay in, in myself about being gay and all of that. And I was sort of just poised to sort of launch myself, you know, to do the kind of, I suppose, the grand coming out. Then I read HIV, I think it was in one of the Sunday newspapers, this little column, and I was like, fuck me. The whole thing then became deeply concerning. I went deeply into myself and into my head, and which is why I think so many of us are around my age have real sort of kind of anxiety issues that we learned through that period about we got anxious, we didn't know how to manage our anxiety and or cope with it, and so we sort of carried on living with it. Went back in that closet, double locked the doors, nobody could get in, and it took me about a good couple of years to get over that. You know, after this couple of years of kind of reevaluating and thinking about who you are, when you unlock that double door in the closet and you, you you come back out, you come into this new, this world. I left university and a job was being advertised to be the AIDS coordinator of the Haemophilia Society. 
and sort of the rest, as they say, is history. I got launched into this world of HIV in all its sort of manifestations. Because of the nature of haemophilia, because it's a lifelong condition, and, and uh, we got, to, I suppose, a similar way to the gay community. You, you, but we got to know each other as a lot. You would meet other people at hospital. Simon Taylor is a HIV activist who has been working for several HIV organisations, including the Terence Higgins Trust, since 1986. And then there was, in particular, a lot of people went to one particular school, which was a boarding school for boys with disability, and they set up a, a treatment centre there. So I missed a lot of schooling before I was about 13 because of you know, my, my health. And I could go, I went to this school and, and, and they could treat my haemophilia if I had a bleeding episode and turn me around and get me back into classes within a few hours, whereas before it would have been some days. And so there were about, I don't know, when I was there, 70 or 80 boys with haemophilia. But similarly, all my best friends from school died. Yeah, you know, so I know at least six of my friends from school who who died and it was tough you know it was not only for your you know for oneself as it were you know but particularly if you were involved in any kind of community group mm. you know watching your friends and colleagues get ill and die around you you know while i was on the hemophilia society executive you know six of my colleagues got ill and died you know, and I sort of watched that and I thought, well, you know, that's going to be me in a year or two's time. I was being approached by haemophilia centres and healthcare professionals in haemophilia centres saying, you know, we've got these people who are just exhausted by their condition and their families are exhausted. We need to set up some kind of respite system. Is there a respite? You know, they've got nobody will take them but they need somewhere to go for respite care, not medical respite care, but literally a holiday, somewhere to go. So we found individual places for individuals to go where they could just get a bit of a break of the daily grind of living with HIV. Those examples that were happening to people with hemophilia were obviously happening to the to everyone affected by HIV and AIDS, you know, whether you were gay or drug using, whatever reasons you were affected. And so it became very clear that the system didn't work and then it was a national AIDS trust inspired idea that there should be this declaration of rights for people with HIV and AIDS so which we at the Haemophilia Society got very enthusiastic about we really believed in that Jonathan Grimshaw who was the principal drafter with Kerry Hutton and they come up with this remarkable document so controversial that the idea that you would say people with AIDS have rights was just unacceptable, which is appalling. But it was a brilliant document based upon the UK's international human rights treaty obligations. They weren't asking for anything that the United Kingdom hadn't already signed up to in international law. And um, it was brilliant. The declaration really came out of conversation after conversation where people went, when people were just aware that discrimination was happening in multiple forms all over the place and sometimes it was legally challengeable maybe but boy oh boy was that not often 
I mean, you, you call them now microaggressions and macroaggressions mm. were, were just all everywhere. So what we thought was we need something which just says, no, enough is enough, actually. Kerry Hutton is a freelance researcher, evaluator and a consultant for voluntary organisations in the field of refugee, migrant and women's rights and corporate accountability. National Aid Trust convened a whole group of organisations, about 20 actually, organisations, uh, all, the, all the ones that you'll think of and some which don't exist anymore, because it was felt that what we needed to do was establish a kind of broad platform really of a, a baseline of protest really about asserting the rights of people with HIV and AIDS, not as something special, but just by pulling out all the rights which existed under an international covenant and charter and putting them in one declaration of rights for people with HIV and AIDS. And then launching that and just saying, you know, lest you forget, <laughs> people with HIV are as entitled to all of these rights as anybody else. How much, certainly media coverage that would have and then knock on effect from that. And what helped us enormously was that there was a the Conservative Family Campaign getting wind of the, our declaration and, and knowing it was going to be um, knowing it was going to be launched, they scribbled on the back of a fag packet something called the Charter of Responsibilities for people with HIV and AIDS, which literally included, it was 20 points, and it literally included things like people with HIV and AIDS must not prepare food. So this was the Conservative Family Campaign, and it was one Stephen Green, and we hadn't got wind of the fact that they were launching it. So they had their scribbled on the back of a fag packet Charter Responsibilities, which is basically lots of things that they'd sat down and brainstormed and just thought, these are the things which people with HIV and AIDS must not do, they must be responsible about. And they launched it the same day. So the media, it probably would have been a bit interested if we'd launched our UK Declaration of Rights. Uh, anyway, what the media had was a fight. It had a fight on, it, you know, it had two opposing forces and it could pit us against one another on news programmes. And so every single news programme all of a sudden became both sides of the ring, as it were, in actual debates on the news, news night, news at 10, news at 6, lunchtime, everywhere. It was everywhere. There was one, <laughs> it was the BBC World Service. And by that stage, I had been in a room with Stephen Green from the Conservative Family Campaign three times, four times already that day. Mm. And the BBC World Service we went into and they wired us up and all that kind of stuff. And he started talking and and then they said, and I just waded in again. <laughs> and he, he looked at me and he just went, oh, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of that woman. Took his head headphones off and stormed out. And, <laughs> and uh, all the BBC World Service people who had been being very professional and calm, they kind of went, it just gave me thumbs up. <laughs> it was kind of like, yeah, if you ever wanted proof that you've won the argument there, you've got it. <laughs> it's, it was great. AIDS really did sum it up. It summed it up on every level. On every level, it showed that the UK couldn't manage that crisis, you know, which is then what really did sort of motivate me. And would I have done this otherwise? I Probably not. But uh, So I then decided I wanted to do human rights law, but carried on committed to all those causes and carried on working on the UK Declaration with Kerry, and then went on to do LGBT rights and HIV rights through the law. I worked very closely, got very involved in the Human Rights Act project with when New Labour came in and 
with Liberty, the organization Liberty, and uh, we now have the Human Rights Act, which is of course at risk, but any any vulnerable community needs to do all it can to endorse the Human Rights Act because we cannot afford to go back. In my view, there needs to be a whole inquiry about how the state has managed the whole LGBT thing throughout the 20th century, because obviously it was the state that was persecuting us. But the AIDS chapter is a standalone chapter. It is a standalone chapter. Jonathan Johnny Cooper was a human rights lawyer and activist. Johnny sadly passed away during the making of this podcast. Johnny worked tirelessly to make the world a better place and improve the lives of all of us. The escalation of AIDS throughout the 90s was immense. An estimated 33 million people were living with HIV and 14 million people had died since the start of the epidemic. And during that period, I was diagnosed HIV positive. So I was diagnosed in 1996. No, I was diagnosed in 1997. And I think I, I, and I trace when I was uh, infected to 1996. So there I was really having worked in this sector <laughs> for mm. coming up to 10 years. And then, you know, this kind of, um, it was just before obviously the drugs kind of made the absolute cataclysmic difference and it also happened to coincide that and it's probably no coincidence that it did um the death of my best male friend so you know I knew as we all did gazillions of people who were infected but my um uh, my best male friend Alistair had had been quite early on and he died in 1996 and, and and with the benefit of hindsight of course you kind of you know there's that agonizing <laughs> agonizing feeling that if only he'd held on the late 90s were a turning point in 1995 the fda approved sequinavir it was an antiretroviral drug like azt that stopped the virus from copying itself but a different stage during the infection a year later, more antiretrovirals were introduced, including nevirapine. Similar to AZT, they shut down HIV by targeting the enzymes it needs to multiply. These drugs paved the way to a new era of combination therapy for HIV and AIDS. This combination therapy was dubbed highly active antiretroviral therapy, or HART. That approach became the new standard of care for HIV in 1996. HART greatly lengthened the lifespan of people with AIDS. I reached out to different organizations to get educated mm -hmm. around treatment and got really interested. Uh, You're a bit of a geek. I know this about you. I don't think I'm a geek, actually. <laughs> you, you know, I'm as far away from a geek as you can get. <laughs> Nobody has ever <laughs> said that You're about You're a treatment geek. I know you are. I've trained with you before, so I know you Winnie Susuma is a HIV activist and advocate working to involve and empower those living with HIV. She was one of the first people from the African community in the UK to have the courage to go public with her HIV status. Within the African communities, we had to counter a lot of myths around treatment, you know. There were a lot of myths around treatments coming from, um, you know, communities, sometimes even the church 
telling people not to take treatment because it was going to kill them. Yet, nobody, nobody stands and tells anybody not to take treatment when, you know, it has to do with any other illness. No one. But HIV was very specific. There was a lot going on at the, you know, at the sort of community level, then at individual level. Right. So in 1996, literally um, came over to the UK to find out what my body was doing because I hadn't been taking any medication. I had had these uh, opportunistic infections that had taken a lot out of me and I was still recovering. So I went to Newham General Hospital um, and that was 1996. Uh, there was a whole buzz about the new treatments, but I hadn't been listening to, to what was going on. All I wanted to know was how long did I have? So when I turned up at uh, Newham and got my tests back, they told me, where have you, you know, the doctor was like, where have you been? You need to get on treatment, you know, like yesterday. Had a CD4 count of one, and, and that was shocking. The CD4 cell count is a test that measures the number of CD4 cells in the blood that reflects the state of the immune system. A CD4 cell count of a person who does not have HIV can be anything between 500 to 1500. People living with HIV who have a CD4 cell count below 200 are at high risk of developing serious illnesses. And actually one of the nurses there was telling me that with a CD4 count of one, you actually have AIDS. And you could die any time, any minute, if you got an opportunistic infection. And I was like, okay. But I said that I wouldn't take the medication because I wasn't living in the UK at that time and that I was going to go back to Uganda in two weeks. And that will be that. But what happened um, then is um, we went to this uh, support group, which was Body and Soul women talking about, you know, literally dying and then getting their lives back because of this medication, the combination therapy that they were on. The next day, I went back to hospital and I said, I'd like to start medication. And that meant also that I was able to stay in the UK and continue to get my life back. I also started volunteering at that support. Why did you start volunteering? I think for me it was like I needed to help others. It took a long time. There's still, I don't think, enough advocates out there, you know, considering how our communities have been affected. Mm -hmm. There are not enough advocates out there. You can't talk about medication and some communities without looking at it through a historical lens, issues around medical racism. And we have a long history of medical experiments or black communities not being included in treatment options or treatment discussions. And I know that some of the earlier treatments that people took had a real effect on their bodies and their skin. So I can understand why that was a challenge for people. 
And it's not just the physicality of taking the drugs, it's the social issues of taking drugs. So if I'm a migrant, if I live in shared accommodation, it's much more difficult for me to store, keep, hide my drugs if people don't know about my status. I don't feel that there is enough being done. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of reasons, you know. Uh, it's not just one reason. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, as people living with HIV, we are victims of our own success. Mm. We've done a lot of work and we've shouted a lot around HIV. People are on treatment now. People have got their lives back now. People are living well with treatment. And therefore, people are thinking, what's the fuss? What's the fuss? Everybody's good. What's going on? Stop complaining, you know? Uh, and so I think we've taken, you know, um, our eye off the ball because there are all these other issues that we still need to address. Lots of positive people really do not like to be asked, how did you get HIV? They find it really offensive. They find it judgmental and all the rest of it. I don't mind that question. I'm like, you can ask me how I've got HIV because my response is quite straightforward. The how is really easy. I got it through unprotected sex, anal, unprotected anal sex, right, without a condom. Ask me the why. That's much more interesting and it's much more true. I got HIV because I had lack of information, lack of access to resources, meaning condoms. I didn't feel empowered to have a conversation with my partner about about condomless sex. HIV was already in my community and my sexual network, but I didn't think that it was part of us. The system wasn't also there to support me around those things. These are the reasons why I got HIV. Flash forward 35 years later, we pick a young black gay man from London, from Mississippi, from Jamaica. These are exactly the same reasons. These are the same reasons black women. These are the same reasons of trans communities. So until we fix those systems, HIV is always going to be there. And it's still going to affect those same people in the same way. In the next episode of We Were Always Here. It was one of those moments when we spent a lot of time together. We spoke, we drove, we sang, we did a lot. You know, it was like, what's that film, Mark? Thelma and Louise. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like that, right? We Were Always Here was presented by me, Mark Thompson. It was produced by Hannah Walker-Brown. The production assistant was Rory Boyle. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Johnny Cooper. No compensation has ever been paid to the victims of the contaminated blood in the UK. An inquiry is ongoing. This is a Broccoli production. <laughs>